Well, please uh, turn uh, to Job once more, Job 38. Well, that's where we're starting anyway, page 538 of uh, the Bibles and we're going to be looking at this amazing speech by our God, Job 38 uh, through to 42 and hopefully also in your service sheets is an outline uh, which will help you as uh, we make our way through these amazing words. It seems to me, and I'm sure you probably feel the same as you look at it, the courtrooms of our world, uh, this nation and many others as well, are increasingly filled with frivolous cases, people suing each other for the strangest things and you start to wonder why they bother. I came across a few this week, I came across two surfers uh, who had gone to court after one alleged that the other surfer had stolen his wave. Eventually the case was dismissed after the court was unable to determine the monetary value of a wave. There's another one, a man who sued Michael Jordan, the famous ex-basketballer, because he says Michael Jordan looks like him. This supposedly had caused this man all sorts of grief because people kept approaching him. And so he was suing Michael Jordan and the founder of Nike for $832 million. But my personal favourite is a mayor of a Turkish city, a Turkish city by the name of Batman, uh, who is suing Warner Brothers for making the Batman movies arguing that the movie had used the name Batman without letting them know. The mayor had argued that this had caused so much stress in the city of Batman uh, that the murder rate had increased dramatically. You wonder why people bother taking these sort of things to court. Well, in one sense, uh, as we come to this part of Job, we have Job making his case uh, as he said his last words before Elihu, as we saw last week, came on the scene, he signed his defence. He said, let the Almighty answer me. So what of his case? Is it frivolous? This man uh, who we've seen his story over these past weeks with a real and living faith in his God, a man with a clear conscience, he is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil and yet he has been hit by disaster after disaster with such force It is really hard to take it in. His possessions were destroyed, his children killed, his health now disintegrating and he is left sitting alone in dust and ashes for months, eventually crying out, why? Why did this happen? Why me? What's your answer, God? This is not what I expected from your hand. In Job 19, he had described himself as like a tiny little tent that the full might of God's army had fallen on. And again and again in this book, he sort of popped his head out of the tent, but not to fly up the white flag of surrender, but to demand an answer, to demand an audience with the Almighty so that he can question him. Along along the way, the friends have uh, attempted to give him an answer, but all of them have proved useless many of them patently wrong and cruel in their response. They've told him that this demand of an audience with God, this demand that God answer him is a pointless demand. But he will not be silenced. He says uh, earlier in the book, if only I knew where to find God, if only I knew where he lived, I could go and ask him. He longs to speak with his God. Job 31, I sign my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. 
And so what of Job's case? Will he be answered? And not just, I suspect, his case, but the case our world often puts to our God when gripped with suffering, when when gripped with evil, the, the case that many of us would want to bring before our God as well. Why this suffering? Why this evil? It seems there is a case to be answered that this is no frivolous one. And then uh, in our chapters the answer comes. If you look back in Job uh, 37, a huge storm has been building. Elihu has been sprouting forth for six straight chapters, this, this wordy man going on and on and on, some gold in amongst it, but lots of words. He looks to the north and sees this storm and all of a sudden he ends his speech very quickly. Thunder and lightning and clouds build from the north and in those clouds is God in all his glory. He comes not to speak to Elihu, not to speak to the friends, but to grant Job his longing, to answer him. And what an answer. He doesn't come to plead his case. He is not the defendant here, but to interrogate Job. Have a look at the second verse of chapter 38. God's first words. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? You want answers, Job? You think you have a right to answers? You think you have the knowledge needed to work this out? You think you've got it all figured out? And you're sure it doesn't add up? Well, before you demand an answer, perhaps you should have asked a few more questions. You seem to know plenty about yourself. You seem to know plenty about your innocence and about your suffering, but when it comes to me, Job, you're not the full book. Your words, when it comes to me, are words without knowledge. So let me lay some knowledge on you, Job. Let me ask you some questions about the world that you think you have figured out. And really, over the course of these chapters, God asks three big questions through a series of smaller ones. The first one he starts in verse 4. Essentially he is asking, Job, can you create a world like this one? You see it there, verse 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Surely you were there with me. You seem to have worked this out. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? And how about the sea, Job? Know much about that? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? Were you there when I fixed its limits and set doors and bars in place and said, this far you may come and no further? Your proud waves halt here. Were we in that together, Job? Can't remember that. What about light? Is that your handiwork, Job? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Having questioned Job about his role in the dawn of our creation, in establishing the world's foundations, God moves on to show him the sheer dimensions of this world he thinks he's worked out. As the passage goes on, it reminded me of going to one of those IMAX theatres where the screen is so big you can't possibly take it all in. And yet Job is convinced that the one little pixel that he can see in his life is what everything is about. And so God sets about blowing Job's dimensions. You ever been to the bottom of the ocean, Job? Wandered around it like it was your lounge room? 
You ever travelled to the vast expanses of the earth? Do you know where light and dark live? Come to think of it, do you understand light at all? And don't give me your high school physics answers. I want more than that. Do you know where it comes from? Do you know where it's going? How about snow and hail and rain and frost? Tell me about them, Joe. Do you know how to store up rain? They're amazing questions, aren't they? Rolling off our God's tongue. Think about this one about rain. Think, think about tonight. Say a rainstorm falls on Yorkshire. An inch of rain over the whole of Yorkshire, some 6,000 square miles, hardly an unusual experience. But imagine it happened tonight. Think about all that rain. Think about the weight of water involved. Millions and millions and millions of tonnes of water. Job, how do millions of tonnes of water float in the air until I let them drop? Explain that to me, Job. And even if you can, try doing it. God continues to blow Job's mind. Now he lifts his eyes even higher. We're in the clouds, we're in the rain. He says, go even higher than that, Job. Verse 31. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion, Job? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Can you do all that, Job? You think you've got the world figured out, but your mind is far too small for these things. I was thinking about that and I remembered uh, while we were on holidays a couple of weeks ago, we were were staying in this cottage down in Devon and just beyond the cottage there was this field that had a sort of a slope, a curved slope. And uh, my four-year-old and three-year-old had decided that that was the curve of the whole world. This was the sphere of the whole world that was just outside our cottage And so every day they wanted to go for what they called a run on the world. And so off we go running around the world and for them it was the whole world. This was it. That's the picture I get here. Job thinks his world is the whole world. God says, you're kidding. He says to humanity, uh, where we start to think we're, we're, we're plumbing the very depths of the stars that we're in the outer limits and we're almost there, we've almost mapped it all. He says, you haven't even left hometown yet. Job says, God, your words about me, about this world, are without knowledge. It's not that you don't know the half of it, Job, it's that you are clueless. So how in the world can you call me into question? Can you create a world like this, Job? Can you sustain it, all of it, all the time? Of course you can't. Then he starts to ask a second question. Can you care for a world like this one, Job? As the questions continue, we get a picture not just of God's knowing and all-powerful and all-skillful creativity, but what starts to come verse after verse is a picture of our God intimately involved in creation. Every detail of it, every aspect. And not just as some dispassionate observer or some master builder who makes it all and then stands back. Now he's intimately involved. Have a look at verse 28 of chapter 38. This is where you start to see a hint of it. He says, does the rain have a father? Job, do you love this world like a father who brings rain just where it's needed, who cares enough to water even land where no man lives? Do you love the world like that? This holiday cottage that we were staying in in Devon had all these sort of houseplants 
uh, inside the house and we were there for a, a couple of weeks and first few days you, you don't even notice they're there. They're just sort of almost part of the furniture. And after about a week or so they start to all droop. And it's about that point you think, I wonder if they wanted us to water them. I think that's the picture we have here of our God. Job, you don't care for the world like I do because you don't own it. It's not like a child to you. But that's how it is to me. I am the father of this world. Even the stars I lead out like they are little cubs. And the point is made even more profoundly as God's questions start to turn to the animal world. Let's have a look at the first verse of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you watch the uh, doe bear her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? You think about these questions. Who watches a child being born? Who counts the days before a child is born on a calendar? Who marks the days off? Only ten to go, nine to go. That's a father and mother's job, isn't it? No one else is interested enough to do that. Tell me, Job, do you care for the mountain goat like that? Counting the days till that moment happens? Were you there when, when the mountain goat gave birth, when the little kids stumbled and, and you tried to get them to their feet? Were you there as they started to grow and thrive? Did you delight in every moment of progress they made? Because I did. Do you care for the world like I do, Job? Enough to be there when the young of every creature is born. Enough to know the times and the places of every creature under heaven, including yours, Job, including your children. I was there, Job. I rejoice with you. I counted the days. I saw every moment of their life, every act, every word, every smile, every tear, the lot. I was there. Now, only a father would be that interested in a child. I've got this uh, video of Finn's first musical concert uh, a couple of years ago, a sort of a Christmas concert for a playgroup uh, in Sydney and uh, they were doing all sorts of dances and songs and uh, it was my first attempt uh, with a video camera and it was just hopeless. It takes me most of the concert to try and zoom in on him enough uh, to actually capture any of it. And then there's this final moment where I actually get to zoom in on Finn and uh, they're in the middle of a song and he's just there like a deer caught in the headlights, not moving at all. I'm thinking, this is not great footage. And eventually it gets to a song that he obviously knows a little bit more and then when it comes time for the actions doing this, Finn starts to do it. The problem is, as I'm videoing this, I get so excited that he's actually getting involved, I start cheering like this and all you can see is these hands in front of the camera and some guy yelling behind it. Now, uh, if I showed that video to you, you'd get bored very quickly, wouldn't you? It's like trying to watch someone else's family videos. You, you watch the first little bit, but then when they say, oh, I've got lots of these, your eyes start to glaze over. Well, God feels that way about the whole world, every creature under heaven. He's the Father. And not just about your world, about everything and everyone. He is involved intimately, caring, careful. And even as his questions continue cheekily, as he starts to describe the, the animals that, that he's made, he, he talks to Job about these animals that he's created and you, you start to see his sense of humour. It's as if he's saying, Job, would you have come up with the animals that I came up with in your neat little ordered way of looking at the world? Have a look at verse 5 of 39. Would you 
have come up with the donkey? What do you make of him? Would you have thought of that one? You know, that, that scene, as if God likes the, the sort of the scene in the movies, I, I start to get the impression here that God would be a fan of the spaghetti western, that scene where the, you, you put the donkey on the post and you, you wander into the pub for a drink and you, you want the donkey just to stay there and as soon as you put it down, off it runs, causing commotion wherever it goes. You call out to it and it ignores you, charging around. Would you have thought of that? Or how about the dopey ostrich? What do you make of her, Job? A bird I gave such a tiny brain to that, that she has so little capacity that she lays her eggs and wanders off and then thinks, where did I leave them? And I gave her these awesome, majestic wings, huge wings, but she can't fly. Would you have thought of that? But put her in a running race and she'll leave horse and rider for dead. That's my idea. doesn't make sense, does it? Not in your neat categories, Search the world for dopey things that seem to have no point. I made them. Mosquitoes, your appendix, Brussels sprouts, (laughs) David Beckham. (laughs) My work, says God. So tell me, Job, can you care for a world like this one? And not as some distant observer, can you care for it like a father who rejoices in the height and depth and length and breadth of it, who cares for every detail, who laughs with joy at its diversity, at its humour. Tell me, Job, can you make and care for this world? If so, says God in chapter 40, verse 2, then perhaps then you can correct me. Perhaps then you can give me a few tips of how you would have done things differently. Job knows he's out of his league. And so he says in verse 4, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. In one sense, the book could have ended there. Job reeling in humble awe of his God, the creator, the father. But God's not finished his interrogation, not by a long shot. And I think for us that is such good news because the world that we've seen described in these first two chapters, 38 and 39, is breathtaking, isn't it? But is it not the world of Louis Armstrong? Trees of green, roses too. I see them bloom for me and you and you know how the song goes and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? There is no richer description of creation than in these chapters. This is our world, if you like, at the dawn. It's, it's like that moment when, when the snow has fallen overnight and you look out first thing in the morning and not a creature, nothing has touched it. It's perfect, so beautiful, so much possibility, just like our world. But then it's not just like our world, is it? And if this is the only world that our God sees from his throne, then he is the one without knowledge. What of the world we actually live in? Not the world at dawn, but the world where this blanket of snow has been muddied, has been rent through with grit. The world uh, that we've seen writ large in our news this week of a world of Mumbai's terrors, or Arista as we prayed for tonight. A world of diseases far too mighty and too complex for our minds. A world not just filled with the cries of joy that come from the natal ward, 
but the cries of pain and grief that come from the oncology ward. What of that world? The real world, not just of ostrich and donkeys and snow, but the broken one, the one riddled with evil, the one living under the shadow of death. What of that world, God? Well, it's to that world that he turns Job's attention to now in chapter 40 because our God is not without knowledge. He knows our world. And so once more he calls on Job to brace himself for what is to come. Essentially he says, tell me Job, in this world that that you live and breathe in, a world that we've established you didn't make and you can't possibly care for as deeply as I do, tell me, do you think you'd know what to do when a world like that turned away from you and fell apart? Would you know what to do when that world rejected your kind and good rule and installed some pretender, a liar, to the throne? Would you know what to do when that world again and again and again chose death, not life? And I haven't finished, Job. Let me ask you, can you walk into a world like this one and as he says in verse 9 of chapter 40, show your powerful arm to it? Could your voice speak loud enough in a world like this to actually be heard and make a difference? Can you wrap yourself in glory and splendour and honour and majesty, Joe? Can you wrap yourself in those things such that day after day people would see you by your spirit and be stunned? Tell me, Joe, is your anger strong enough, fair enough, constant enough to actually outlast the massive wrongs in this world? Does it last long enough to outlast the wrongdoer or do you move on to the next thing? Can you stare down the proud, Job? Can you say to the rich, the powerful, the arrogant, the abuser, stand down, who do you think you are? Would it be just for you to sentence a world like this to death? Who do you think you're discrediting here, Job? Whose counsel do you think you are darkening? I am not your peer or your buddy or your debating partner. I am your God. And if you can do these things, and only if you can do these things, can you possibly hope to save yourself from a world like this? That's where Job's been heading in this book, increasingly confident in the power of his own righteous deeds to vindicate him. And so what God does for him now is he says, if you really think that's enough, let me introduce you to the true horrific powers that oppose you in this world. Job, behold the behemoth and the Leviathan. Now as we turn to these two characters, and this is where we'll finish off uh, tonight, uh, again and again uh, in in the history of looking at these chapters, uh, commentators have argued that these two figures are nothing more than the hippo and the crocodile, as if God's big final point is Job, I made the crocodile. I made the hippo. But as uh, George Bernard Shaw once said, uh, not a Christian, but he says, God has to do better when it comes to the problem of suffering than tell me he made a hippo. And he does do much better than that. Because these two uh, pictures that we're looking at here, the behemoth and the leviathan, are pointing to something far more terrifying than any animal. You see, throughout uh, this book of Job, there's been various mythical Canaanite gods that have been referred to, pointing our attention to them. 
Now the book clearly knows they are false gods, they're myths, nothing more, but it uses them. The nature of the book in poetry uses them to point us to the true and living God rather than the false gods of that time or our time. The Leviathan and the Behemoth are the big examples of this. Right back in chapter 3, when Job first started to speak, he said, those who are ready to rouse up Leviathan curse the day I was born. Now at this point, no commentator thinks he's talking about a crocodile. To rouse up Leviathan is to call on God's enemy, God's arch enemy, Satan himself, to do his worst. It's as if Job is saying back in chapter 3, Satan, you've destroyed me. You've taken my livelihood, you've taken my family, now you're destroying my body. May as well finish the job. The Leviathan of chapter 41 is the same figure. It is none other than God's enemy, Satan. The God of this world, as Jesus calls him. The one who we have seen right at the start of this book, who is the epitome of terror and evil. Job needs to see he is no match for this one. He needs to see that only God can defeat this one and also the behemoth, an image in Canaanite mythology for death itself. A bit like our our culture uses the, the image of a hooded figure with a sickle. That was their version of it. And so here in these final chapters, God asks his third big question. Having asked, can you create a world like this one? Having asked, can you care for a world like this one? He now asks, can you save a world like this one? A world under the power of Satan and death. And over the course of these two chapters, we have vivid pictures painted for us of their power. The behemoth, death, is described as having awesome strength in his loins, powerful muscles in his belly and untold sway over creation. And we know that all too well, don't we? Death brings so much good to naught. I think of my good friend who died age 22, a man who had the brain the size of a planet. He was about to start a PhD on some philosophical giant and bring him down a peg or two and I suspect he would have done it. All sorts of good things lay ahead of him, over in an instant. That was ten years ago and it seems like yesterday. You can still see on the little plaque on his gravestone, it says, age 22, the age I was when he died. Ten years ago, a behemoth walked up and that was it. And I have no doubt that there are many here who have felt the sting of behemoth's tail far more than I have. You know his power and you know how powerless you are before him. One of my most vivid memories of my first year here was watching a godly and humble man feel the sting of behemoth seeing him drive up the motorway to be at his mother's bedside as Behemoth did his worst. Death is no friend. He is a cruel enemy. What could possibly be more powerful than Behemoth? Nothing, surely. Well, yes, there is something. Leviathan. Satan. The one who Hebrews tells us has the power of death in his grasp. It is just a weapon to him. And we've seen that in the first two chapters of this book as he did his worst with it on Job's family. And his power, incredible. Chapter 41 is given over to it. In verse 8 we're told if you tussle with him you'll never do it again. Verse 9 we're told you have no hope of subduing him. He is utterly too powerful for you. Nothing on earth is his equal. 
He looks down on all the proud. He is king over all the proud. He is the prince of this proud world as Jesus calls him in John 12. He rules the world with an arrogant, heartless rule. A world that the Bible tells us has handed over power to this one. Having rejected God's rule, they've installed this one. There's a world utterly enslaved to his cruel dictatorship. And so for two chapters, God has writ large about the power of these two. Why? He's done it so that Job may understand that his God, his creator, his father is stronger still. So much stronger. You see, God says of Leviathan, he says, who then is able to stand against me? This one? This pretender to my throne? No way. Who has a claim that I must pay? Everything, including this vile creature, belongs to me. And we start to see the true comfort here. And then he says of death, the one we feel powerless before. Do you see what he says in 40 verse 19? Death ranks first among the works of God. There is nothing more powerful and yet do you see what it says in the verse? His maker can approach him with a sword and plunge it deep and say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? True comfort. See your God clearly in these chapters. It is impossible for death to hold him down. Can you save a world like this one, Joe? I can. I have. I made you. I know your feeble frame. I am intimately aware of all your days. I am with you in all of them. And I care for you more than you can wrap your mind around. And though your world has chosen Satan's rule and though it chooses death, not life, I can turn all that around by my grace. You want to know how your story ends, Job, the story that's taken this horrible twist? This is how it ends. I win, not Satan. I win, not death. These chapters do for us a lot more than we could possibly hope when it comes to questions of suffering. They don't answer them neatly for us. Something far more helpful for anyone like us seeking to live rightly in a world like this. Because here we have at last a book that is strong enough to take us from the absolute lowest ebb that life this side of heaven can throw at us. As low as even Job experiences here and lead us to where Job ends up in chapter 42 verse 5. Do you see it there? My ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you. Job has no easy answers for us here. No trite phrase for life's dark moments. But instead you see it does something far better. It places us face to face with our greatest treasure, our God our awesome creator, our intimate father and our mighty saviour whose mercy and compassion nothing can separate us from. I reckon seeing this means that I can know with humble assurance that whatever evil or suffering comes, it cannot go one inch further than he intends. Nor will it go on forever for my God wins and I belong to him. Let's pray. Let's pray.